LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guests today are Thomas Sheridan and Neil MacDonald. In a wide-ranging talk, we cover many subjects, including historical witch hunt mania and witch trials, the modern-day witch hunts of COVID-19, elite use of occult forces against the lower classes, magic, the conscious focus and direction of energy and intent, psychometry, energy fields of objects which can record their history, quantum retrocausality and the illusion of linear time, and consciousness as the fundamental stratum of reality. Hello and welcome, Thomas. Neil, thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much again, Greg. Very much appreciate it. Excellent, excellent. We've had a real, you know, real blast last times we've done this. So today we're going to be talking. Um, it's going to be a conversation spinning off from a project that you guys um, are. I think you're just completing it at the minute. There's a book already out: Alison's Lament, the Pendle Witch Story Retold, an Occult Insight. You're also making a film. If people want to know, like people should know. A lot of people listening to this will know who Thomas is. If they go back to our previous interviews with you know with the three of us, they can get biographical information. You know, I don't need to go into all of that now. I think, but maybe you could just give us the the the, the genesis of this project. Clearly, I know this is a, a topic that you're you're both very interested in. You're coming at it from your own respective angles. So yeah, just just tell us how this started and what it was really about this story that you thought you'd like give, give your perspective on. About 10 years ago, I saw, when well, I was doing an event in Lancashire, and someone took me to Pendle Hill for the first time. And I found the atmosphere very interesting. I had a little bit of a, a witchcraft tourism industry going on. And people told me, oh, they were wise women and healers and, you know, kind of a new age Wiccan kind of aspect to it. Uh, and I knew that wasn't the the full story and I, I didn't really have much interest in it till years later when uh, i noticed the talk of the neil crashley he just mentioned that he runs a tour to pendle hill uh for that reason for the the witchcraft and the witch trials reason and i said to him well, what's your theory on it and he gave me his theory on it and suddenly it was a whole new world for me this was far more than you know just a run-of-the-mill witch trial as it would be portrayed in the sort of like orthodox scientific historic kind of sense and it certainly wasn't the new agey kind of you know wise women who were persecuted by the man for no reason type thing either the the story was very very complex and two things stood out to me. One, it proved magic worked. And the second thing was that 
it taught me that the establishment had a paralyzing fear of the peasantry having access to witchcraft. Yeah, so look, to, to my sort of beginnings, really, um, so sort of being from this area, from Lancashire, it's it's kind of always been there, um, just in the in the in the sort of the zeitgeist. It's part of who we are. It's a very important story for sort of most sort of uh, Lancashire families, really. And so I, it was in twenty twelve that I decided to sort of commemorate it because that was a four hundred year anniversary of sixteen twelve when the trials were and all these things happened. So that's when I started doing tours there. It's kind of yeah, it's gone on for all these years. But, but uh, like Thomas says, there's a lot more to it than just the um, just that idea of power. I mean, the power is very, very, very important to it. But it's like we've said at the moment, why do why do the elites keep doing what they're doing? Well, I'm sure it's because they are frightened of losing what they've got, losing the power over us. So I think that's kind of a, the, the basis of it all. Is the, the is Pendle Hill? I'm not I'm trying to th- decide if I've been there or not. Is there a viaduct or uh, nearby? There is, yeah. There's a railway viaduct on the the line that goes to Blackburn. Right. I have been there, and I got some photographs. Now, this is interesting because I went there. I can't remember what time of year it was, but it must have been quite late in the year because I remember it was afternoon and the sun was starting to set. And we went to, right down to the foot of the viaduct, you know, such an impressive structure. And we got off the train at the station nearby. And um, it was only when we got right down to the viaduct and I turned around and looked back in the direction we come from that I saw the hill. And the light on it was so strange. And I'm going to go and dig out those photographs after this, actually. And it was really, there was such something about it. And I was just, again, it's not compared to mountains in some parts of the world. This is a hill. This is not some grand snow-capped thing, you know, rising up through the clouds. But there was something about it, and I just kept staring at it. And that, there was a reason. I took multiple photographs of it. We walked about a further mile parallel to the hill, and I kept taking pictures. And the light was kind of amazing. There was definitely something about it. And I don't know why, because, uh, you know, a big old mass of earth and rock like that anywhere else in the country probably wouldn't have captured my attention. So, But when I was reading your book, I thought, hang on a minute. And I saw the picture of it, and I thought, I think I've been there. So I thought it was interesting that that it captured my attention in the way that it did. And it reminded me of this idea, you know, like, for example, Rupert Sheldrake has expounded. And I think increasingly it's not his idea as such, but he's given a scientific polish to it, that everything on some level is imbued with consciousness. You know, the sun, the moon, you know, the earth itself, uh, rocks, you know, th- that's some level. Uh, you know, if consciousness is fundamental, then of course everything is. It permeates everything. It is everything. Everything, everything originates from it, including this hill. Yeah, well, it's. I think it's um, the, the the place itself just uh, just um, emanates an atmosphere of the past. It can, you can feel it as you as you uh, as you approach. You know, as children, we used to go up there uh, on Halloween. Strangely enough, there used to be hundreds of people who go up there on Halloween. And uh, so that over the over the centuries, it's just gathered this energy, and you can feel it when you when you when you when you're there when you arrive in that uh, area. I think Thomas said that um, 
when we we first did our little film right at the beginning, you you felt an atmosphere then, didn't you? Yeah, there's a strong sense of animism to Pendle Hill itself that you feel this thing is constantly looking at you. To use the the old expression from that movie, "The Hills Have Eyes," it does that. It does feel like that. It feels like this thing is looking down on you. It's very peculiar, but the entire countryside around it is almost like in a vortex or something. There's a very strange sense of melancholia about the whole Pendle, what they call a Pendle Witch country area. And you can just, the sensitive person is immediately aware that this is a place of dark secrets, or or secrets, I should I say. You're in a kind of different spiritual domain. And I'm not surprised that over the years it attracted all kinds of sort of religious, you know, strangeness, like the Quakers were founded there after the guy who founded the Quakers appeared upon Pendle Hill as if it gave him the instruction to find the the, the religion. And there's all kinds of weird stories like that. The, the actual landscape does feel alive. Yeah, it doesn't have, interestingly enough, in the record, any kind of druidic or druidry or Celtic or even megaliths. There's nothing like that there. There's no kind of ancient history, which in some ways, funny enough, actually makes it more powerful or something. The fact that it's not calling upon this kind of ancient reputation to bring it to life. And I find that tremendously fascinating. Well, it's strange you should mention the the George Fox thing. I was going to do the same thing because I used to do a tour. I don't do it anymore. It was something called something like the unusual religions of Lancashire. And it just seems that that area seems to um, bring things like that to to fruition. There was, I said, there was a George Fox Fox thing. There was also a religion down the road called the Gringletonians, and there's another one called the Ingamites. And of course, there's the witchcraft thing. It's as if there's something there that people latch onto. So it's only spiritual, but different. I know you've spoken. Uh, um, I'm very interested in psychometry, Thomas. I know you've written and spoken about this, and you think you know a great deal more about it than me. But this idea that, well, stones in particular, but I think that almost any material object can can receive and retain energy from events basically and that can be um psychic energy as well as you know uh energy from you know from physical happenings as it were and not necessarily negative but in, in i think many of the most notable cases it has been because you're looking at extreme energy and you know things like death for example obviously you are that's an extreme energetic um outlets you know at that point wherever there's dry stone walls i've discovered the you forget even in the absence of megaliths, wherever there are dry stone walls, whether it be the north of England, the west of Ireland, or New England in America, there is that hauntological psychometric energy force exists. I think the 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 psychometric state of stone walls, dry stone walls now is very underappreciated. And I think you will find that a lot of the cultures where dry stone walls exist, there's tremendous folklore, there's tremendous ontological resonance in the landscape. And I think that's really what the, you know, there's no megaliths, but you can do it with dry stone walls. They also have that psychometric power in them. You think of somebody, you think of those stones, they were brought up to the surface by cold weather, or they were dug out of the earth. They're put together with mortar in such a way 
they have an almost noetic nature about them that the person picking up the stone will slot it into just the right place. I don't think I've ever tried making a dry stone wall or repairing one, but you realize soon enough it's it's like a supernatural uh, ability that these people who build these walls have to be able to find just the right stone to go into right just the right spot. And so you think about that, you think about the people building those walls. They're demarcating the landscape in a kind of a, a megalithic kind of way when you think about it. And the stones, each 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 field or boundary that the stones surround is almost like a magic circle of its own or a magic square or a magic rectangle. Yeah, it's interesting. You can actually do, without becoming a <clears throat> dry stone waller, you know, fully trained and skilled, um, I've noticed somewhere that they actually run like I think it's just like encounter type experiences where you can go and do a day of it, you know, get your first start, have a go at dry stone walling. And it's just interesting. I know someone who has run those things. It's really interesting the people that show up to them, you know, people that you just wouldn't expect. And they seem to get a surprising amount out of it, you know, even more than they were, if they had any expectations, more than they expected. So it's it's just interesting in, you know, climate that's, you know, I'm talking about social and technological climate when there's no quote unquote need for it, that certain heritage skills seem to persist and that uh, even if they don't really know why, some people are involved in preserving them and passing them on seem to kind of, you know, even if they can't articulate it, there's some kind of special significance here and this mustn't be allowed to, to die out. In the north of England, where um, as you probably know, uh, the Lake District, everywhere stone walls. It comes from a time, doesn't it, from the closures as well, which was quite a uh, a time when a lot of the landscape was robbed from people. And then you've got um, the Shap Avenue. So you go to the place, I don't know if you've been to Shap, it's really high up on the highest place that you can pass through on a motorway. And there used to be a Shap Avenue there. It was um, about one and a half to two miles long, started off at the Stone Circle, the Grey Cross Stone Circle, Went right through the town and up on a hill. And all those stones, I mean, there must have been thousands of stones. They were all uh, blown up, taken down. And all the stones in the area, all the walls in the area, were made out of those stones. So that just gives it a whole different um, aspect to the... the, And I think you can feel it when you go. Yeah, I have passed through that area many times when driving from... England to Ireland via Scotland, you know, coming up the M6. Yeah, there's some, you have to watch yourself on that particular stretch in motorway because there's so much spectacular scenery around uh, that, you know, you can actually cross it. You can cross the median, as they say in the States. Even then, there was a kind of special energy. And um, of course, you're always good to stop at, uh, at TB for oh, that, yeah, for, for that reason. The best, yeah. <laughs> So in my recent interview, uh, listeners can find, I did with John Michael Greer, the interview was entitled The Secret of the Grail. I'm mentioning this because in it, he's trying to trace Grail legends and, you know, and, and they where this originated, what it might mean, you know, uh, in the terms of there being uh, reality to it, you know, what about locations, historical figures? I mean, this has been done time and time again. And he's basically shown, as others have, that these legends uh, you know, are repeated down centuries and millennia. In fact, they're very similar types of characters in the same way that you have the Jesus story repeated lots of different places and you know, many, many mythological and archetypal sort of stories. You know, we seem to have different parts of the world have their own version of it. But in his book, he ends up in exactly your part of the country, Neil, 
looking for some of these um, grail locations. And uh, he talks about the the um, uncertain, or he's talking about a particular area that really had some strange oh, the debatable lands. The debatable lands, you know, this yeah, yeah, fast yeah. this fascinated me absolutely. Yeah. And he ends up very much there and up to the Scottish borders, looking for some of these grail locations, unrelated perhaps to the Pendle Witch story. But I, I, I'm mentioning it because he's in that neck of the woods, you know, literally at that time, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. That's where the, the lands, the Scottish border moved backwards and forwards, and. So it was. It was. Nobody knew who really controlled the land in between. But we've got like we've got Pen Pendragon Castle, and they think that went back to um, a time of from the, of the Dark Ages. And then we've got there's a little um, what was it called? There's a little uh, old house that's falling down. A really, really, really old house. And there's a a, a poem connected with that that is connected to. Um, who was the one that was from Lancaster, Lancelot? Uh, really, really, really old poem. It's fantastic. And then there's um, King Arthur's Round Table, which is just a henge. So you do wonder, don't you, what, why all these things have got those names? But uh, like you see, it's lost. The the reason is lost in time. It does relate to the Pendle story in a way. I have a great uh, appreciation for Mr. Greer's work, although I haven't heard that latest interview with Dominic. I'm looking forward to it. But if you look at the size of what we call Wales, which is really sort of like the Britonic Wales, the Welsh country, whatever, it stretched all the way up from, say, Bristol up to the Scottish borders. It was a much larger country back then. And this is, you know, allegedly where the the Grail mysteries, the Grail legends, the Grail romances, wherever you call them, took place. And up at the Scottish, so yeah, the south you had, you know, sort of like where, if you look at places like Gladstonebury, was that, you know, Camelot. And then you go all the way up to the Scottish borders. And that's where Merlin, who was a real character called Mithrin, really existed. Now, right in the middle of that is Lancashire. And this may be the reason why Lancashire in the 1600s at the time of the Pendle Witch Trials was considered literally an unknown territory. Neil will tell you more about this, but it's it's hard to believe, but there was a, po- a time where Lancashire was considered basically, you know, no man's land. And that's only about, what, 500 years ago. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that um, perceptions of time, the passage of time and, and what, uh, you know, what a lifetime amounts to. And I don't know, just we live in a world of such busyness and, uh, you know, just filled with noise and light. And uh, we tend to forget, you know, Maybe we never even really contemplated it. Uh, you know what a different world it was. You know, even two hundred years ago, never mind five hundred years. You know, I think if we were were able to time travel back even to this period, just be dropped into the middle of it, um, I think there would be a lot of things that we'd be very surprised by, things we were expecting that we didn't see, and things that we were not expecting that were were, were happening that existed. Yeah, things have changed so much over the the generations, and it. If you if you consider that this is really with the cotton mills uh, mainly that the industrial revolution kind of kicked off in that area as well, so how much did the, the fact that that was possible to come from there come from the past, and how much has it killed off? Or well, because all these uh, sort of the towns like even well Preston was a merchant place, but uh, Accrington, Blackburn, Burnley, Nelson, Cone, all these places uh, all grew up. Uh, because of the Industrial Revolution, so they weren't, they didn't really exist apart from very, very small hamlets. And now, now they, they, they uh, developed into 
to huge towns, but uh, with people working from, well, 18 hours a day, and it really was a gruesome life if you were drawn into the mills. But, of course, everybody had to be. But how much did that kill off the past? You, you, you have to wonder. It's part of that continuum where, first, the, the harrying of the North you know, from the Norman point of view, and where they basically exterminated the north of England that refused to become Norman. And then you had that, and then you had the Industrial Revolutions. So it's that the past really is very far away when you're a place like Lancashire. And you only get hints of it when you, when I was researching for this, for Alison's Lament and the film, for the book and the film, I was reading documents about, written by people like magistrates and people involved in the British government, English government, back in 1612. And they would talk about Lancashire like it was the Wild West, like it was it, it was west, the west of Ireland or the most remote parts of Scotland or even parts of the New World. It was, they had a, a dread of it. It's really quite fascinating. So the Industrial Revolution that happened after the Pendle Witch event gives you a kind of a false impression of what that part of the world was like. Well, there are still pockets of... And maybe that's the reason why the power of Pendle and the Pendle area is so strong, is because it is a kind of a pocket that survived industrialization. The nearest towns are in the next valley over, like Nelson. I think Bornley is over there as well. But maybe that's why. It was what, before the Industrial Revolution, it was literally going to Mars, as far as the establishment in London was concerned. Yeah, there was no real control here. Again, it comes back to the debatable lands. And there was the, the um, what did they call the the the, uh, the groups that used to go out at night? And there was the Border Reavers, that was it. So there was basically no law. So the, the, the Border Reavers would just be people who would have no normal families during the day. And in the evening, they'd go out just helping themselves to the surrounding sheep and cows and whatever they felt like. So there was so for that reason, um we were imposed upon by Norman Lords. So the king would send up and put Norman Lords in position and told to subdue the area. So we're kind of used to it really. One of the reasons that Catholicism survived there following the Reformation, and Catholicism is a, you know, the, the, the sort of sectarianism of that time plays a huge factor in the Pendle Witch story. One of the reasons that Catholicism survived there is not because of any kind of staunch, you know, desire by the locals to, to stand up. It was literally, there was no, it literally survived because there was no one really coming down on them until the time of the Pendle Witch trials. Before that, they were, they were out of the, the, beyond the pale, so to speak of the Reformation, and therefore it solidified itself within the the establishment, within the orthodoxy of London society and, and English power things, that they associated Catholicism with untamed wildness. And that and, and Lancashire was almost seen like a, a part of Ireland that had been transformed or sort of survived in England in that way, and that it was still Catholic. And it was literally a kind of a what's the word, a plantation was needed. And it began with, like, witch, witch trials. That was the actual impetus to actually say, we've got to clean this place up of, uh, of Catholics and witches, because the, the extreme Calvinist religion of the time brought down from Scotland by King James literally believed that the, the Catholic Mass and the witches' Sabbath were the same thing. 
and that's no that's no exaggeration. They really believe that. Oh, let's yeah, let me say a word about James then. James the first oh, of yeah. England. Uh, he was also James the sixth of Scotland, and this is King James of the King James Bible fame. A lot of people will know. He would have been someone very much at home with the current you know cadre of globalists. I think I read that he travelled to North Berwick, which was at the time was it's actually in Scotland, uh, to observe witch trials going on up there. And uh, I also read that he personally oversaw the torture of some of the accused. I don't know about that for sure, but based on what I have read, it wouldn't necessarily surprise me. As a very very paranoid individual and quite a fanatic in his own way. Yes, that's true. He, he did. Over, yeah, he did oversee the trials. Not at, he didn't encourage him. He, was, he sat there as an observer to wanted to see how it works. How this came about was that him and his wife were coming back from Denmark by ship, and the sea blew up, and he was convinced that these witches in Scotland had caused the storm, and that's literally how it came about. So he, there was a personal vendetta in it for him too. Yeah, he was one scary guy, wasn't he? And this is something that goes through. It went into the Atlantis book as well, didn't it? it, it it's this group of people, whoever they are, that seem to want to hold on to power so much and everybody else just has to... Because the, the average person doesn't want power like that, but it, there seems to be a, a group out there and uh, and they're always, they're, always the, they're always the elites. And some of them are worse than others. Like, if you look at the first English witchcraft law that was ironically introduced by Queen Elizabeth who came to power because of witchcraft essentially uh, it was toothless more or less and there was very few, pro there was pro lots of prosecutions but execution was very very rare, in fact the majority of people who were tried with witchcraft up until the time of King James were acquitted the, the, the death sentence was very very rare and that's because James changed it from a legal matter. See, pr prior to that, he'd let the churches uh, over in the regions oversee basically the persecution or the rounding up of witches. And these tended to be, as far as he was concerned, lenient. So what he did was he put it in the statute books, more or less, and he gave the, the witchcraft law that was first passed by Queen Elizabeth and then, actually her father, sorry, Queen King Henry VIII did that and then her, and then he put teeth onto it. He made it a legal statutory framework where the courts could be used and even a, a young child could be brought into court in the case of testifying against witches, which would have been considered, you know, outrageous prior to that. You can't have children coming into a courtroom and determining the lives of, children, of, of adults with stories of witchcraft. And again, it reminds me so much of today where they're, desperate to turn the younger generation against the older generation and it happened so quickly it happened literally overnight as soon as he ascended to the throne and came down from scotland after being basically raised by the scottish corpse he he just changed the law to persecute witches and introduced things that would have been considered like outrageous in like a decade before the changes happened very quickly yeah and at the same time that they're introducing these laws, you wonder what their personal beliefs were because um, there was, was it, um, Elizabeth I had John Dee, an, an, an absolute uh, alchemist as her personal advisor, and James I was a mason from the Lodge of uh, uh, Scone, 
Trunod's gone and Trun, is it? Or Trunod's the other way around. But, yeah. uh, so he must have some ritual in his, in his background that, he, that wasn't anything to do with um, Protestantism. And then, of course, they were connected to the Knights Templar who came over there to 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 flee the Catholic Church. It's, it, it, you wonder, don't you, whether they had a personal belief that all they wanted really was that nobody, had, that the the people at the bottom rung of the ladder were allowed to use the same powers. Yeah, well, that's, some, that's something we're going to get to, actually, during this interview. That's why they put their faces on coins, with only one eye shown. As a profile, it was a patriopathic magic. The the one eye on the coin of the, the regent's head was ward off the evil eye, and they also wore things called gauges, which is what uh, James definitely wore. And it was a small ring on the little finger to, to avoid hereditary curses. So these people... They they did not they didn't route out the witches in Lancashire, and the Scotland and the rest of the UK and well it wasn't the UK then the rest of England and Scotland because they saw it as a social problem. Did it to extend they routed them out because they themselves were absolutely petrified of witchcraft. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you look at the uh, you think about the, the, you point out in the in the book, you know the how you can look at similarities between what those condemning witchcraft would have called a black mass, you know, the inversion of a Christian mass. And then you look at, you know, what a, what a Catholic mass actually entails and look at whatever, you know, to, to an outsider, a visitor from another planet looking at these things, they say, well, these things, these are really one and the same thing with just some variations, you know, and then the, you would have had the same, whatever, what later became, you know, the Protestant church and uh, the case we're talking about the church of England, whatever that is, there's loads of things overhangs from, you know, the Catholic Mass. It's basically it's all ceremony, isn't it? It's all magical ceremony, even if it is devoid of energy or the understanding of what's behind it. The going through the motions thing still all derives from the same thing. So you got these people throwing stones at each other when they're really involved in fundamentally the same thing. Look at the decrease in coronation of King Charles. It, it, that's why so many people. All over the world tuned in to watch that, and there was a gigantic collective, what the fuck, kind of thing watching it because they were seeing a magical ritual before their eyes. The whole thing of putting up the screens so he's stripped naked and covered in goose fat. This weird, these weird kinds of things that go on, and the, the strange implements, devices, wands, essentially a scepter, and the use of gems, crystals, whatever. And I think a lot of people watched, I think one of the mistakes the royal family made, or the royals in Britain made, was broadcasting that event live. It didn't go out censored before, like Queen Elizabeth's one 70 years ago as a film. And, and I think a lot of people around the world said to themselves, these guys are a bunch of occultic weirdos, because that's what they are. I, I didn't watch it, but somebody told me that there was a moment, a really awkward moment, when someone was placing the crown. Maybe you, one of you guys or both of you might have seen this. Uh, placing the crown on uh, the head of King Charles III, and they kind of fumbled it, and yeah. Ch Charles looked, you know, like it, he was not happy about that. I saw. I didn't watch the, any of the event at all, but I saw that uh, on a YouTube that he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he obviously hadn't placed his fucking crown on somebody's head, and he did. He wobbled over the place, and he had to quite keep moving it into position. And yeah, Charles was not happy. Was not happy at all. Well, you, right there, you could see a kind of a breaking of a spell, couldn't you, in a way? Yeah, you know, and there was a, 
there was a time as well where he, I don't know why, but everything was up front and seen. And for one little bit, he had to go behind a screen and uh, and do part of the ritual and come out again. So, yeah, that was, the, that, that was the part where he smeared in goose fat. <laughs> Naked, by the way. Really? Yeah. Well, he is in everything. Yeah. Who does the smearing? Is it sort of a Lord High smear or something? There will be. I bet there will be one. Well, they have a, they have a lot. They still have their Lord of the Privies who essentially take care of their bowel movements and things like that. Changer of the, the royal um, potty and things, yeah. Yeah, and they're like the masters of the swans where, you know, they get, they safeguard these swans you know, where they pay a guy to look after and count swans and only, you know, he, he kills them so they can have a bit of Christmas banquet. It, it's just it's just truly bizarre. It really is. It, it's, it, yeah, it, it, it's time. It depends what you think about it, but uh, it is very, very old-fashioned. And you, you do wonder whether they understand. I'm sure the people at the top understand what's oh, behind all these rituals. I, I found an old copy of a magazine the other day, and it was a 70s magazine, which I bought a bunch of them, called M- Man, Myth and Magic. They, they oh, yeah. Remember else they, they they came into a folder. I bought them because they were never on sale in Ireland when I was growing up. So uh, I got them. I started collecting them. One of them, funny enough, was the 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 astrological chart of Prince Charles, as he was known back then in the mid this be seventy four. And they said one of the things that I said in his horoscope was a major upheaval in the family life caused by an accident. Yeah, well, I mean, at some point today, uh, towards the end of this chat, we're going to get to talking about, you know, what magic actually is and the mechanics of that. This does relate to emerging science, you know, quantum physics. And there's this idea of retro causality and, uh, you know, our perceptions of time, the past, present and future uh, are not what we think they are. Now, that linear chain of events is really more of an appearance. You know, it's a a byproduct of our consciousness, uh, our limited consciousness trying to make sense of what we experience in the outside world. So where I'm going with this is it's entirely possible that a resonance from an event that appears to be what we would call in the future actually goes what again appears to be backward in time and is picked up, is felt, experienced, interpreted by people or individuals who, again, from a conventional timeline, are in that past where the event has not yet happened, but in, in some way, all everything is simultaneous. So it's a, re, it's a real difficult thing to get your head around, but I can totally see how this idea of precognition and you know future visions and stuff can work when you have that more enlarged, expanded perspective on time. Well, that's remarkable because I've been, that you said that, because I've been deep into the study of quantum causality in the last couple of weeks. The scientists who developed theory and proved it won the Nobel Peace Prize for physics over it, and it's it's quite a remarkable thing how they how they do it and how it's how they discovered it. But it, they definitely proved through multiple testing and retesting that the past can be erased. Now we're getting we, we'll wait till a bit later on when we talk about magic and the nervous system and so on. But for me, it started to answer questions about certain things, like so many people I know who would say were the vanguards or the zealots of the past three years, the Rona years, should we call them, seem to have no apparent memory of it actually happening. 
That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>